Welcome to the Booked Podcast with your host for the week, Monwena Loman. In the studio today is Andy Miller, here to discuss his new um, memoir. Are we calling it a memoir? We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is, but it's a book called The Year of Reading Dangerously, How 50 Great Books Saved My Life. Um, so start me off with a bit about the premise and uh, the yeah. list of betterment. Well, thanks very much for having me. Um, the premise of the book is that it's based on a thing that I actually did, not for a book, but for my own life. And what it was that I did was I decided as I approached the age of 40 that I would read initially a dozen, but as it turned out, 50 very famous, well-known books that I had at various times in my life lied about having read. (laughs) And so what I did was I started with uh, a book called The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. And I thought that was fantastic. And then I read Middlemarch by George Eliot, and I thought that was fantastic. And then I read The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and I thought that was fantastic. And then I read, um, oh, God, The Ragged Trousers Philanthropists by uh, Robert Tressel, and I thought that was fantastic. (laughs) And then I read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I thought that was rubbish. And at that point, (laughs) I thought, ah... I might have a book here. So um, it started off as a thing, an actual thing. I looked at great pains to say this because I don't want people to think that it's something that I thought, oh, that'll be a lark, and then I'll get a book out of it. Yeah. It was a thing. I love books. I've spent my whole professional life in books, but I did kind of feel I was lost touch with books rather. Mm. So it was a sincere attempt to do something, and then it, I wrote a facetious book about it. <laughs> so you mentioned... Um to start you know in the beginning that this list of betterment is something that you've come back to a few times over the years and something that you've maybe tried before often talked about yeah I'm gonna do this it's gonna be great and read all these books and then you finally actually did it and what was the was was it what was the turning point was it just Master and Margarita and reading that and thinking actually no no I'll tell you what it was honestly it was so I talked I'd had this idea when I was about (laughs) I had this idea when I was about 35 <laughs> and I thought, oh, I could do that. I've got five. It's like giving up smoking. Yeah. I've, got, I've got years to do that before I'm 40. I just, I'll just do that at some point before I'm 40. I'll read like a dozen books. I'll read Anna Karenina and I'll do it and I'll definitely do it. And I, so what I did is what I always do in my life is I told loads of people that I was going to do it. And then by telling them that dissipated the energy of actually going ahead and doing it. So... When I got to about 37 and a half, 38, I thought, mm, I've only got two years now. I don't want to be 40 and not have read, specifically not have read Moby Dick. Yeah. Moby Dick is the sort of talismanic text in this book Yeah. where I thought, I don't, I've just, I, I mean, we could all tell fibs about Moby Dick. We all know about Moby Dick. We all know about loads of these books because it's in the nature of culture and our education mm-hmm. and talking to one another. But it's very difficult, Mulwenner. If I said to you, if you said to me, Andy, what did you think of Moby Dick? And I, having not read it, we found it we found it quite hard at some level not to go, oh yeah, I really liked it, because I'm in publishing and yeah. books, and I write about books, and I love books. So to answer your question, the thing that actually made me do it was thinking, I don't want to get into my fifth decade and still be, you know, bullshitting away. Mm. So so. I, the first book that I read was The Master of Margarita, 
an amazing book by Mikhail Bulgakov. And I really, to be honest with you, I read it on a whim. Mm. Uh, I was looking after my son, who at the time was two, and we'd been over to a place called Broadstairs in Kent, Fantastic where we'd place. been to the ice cream parlour for the day. <laughs> and he had fallen asleep in his pushchair. And on the way back to the station, I'd gone into the bookshop to buy him a Mr. Man book. And uh, <laughs> this is all true. This is a I'm going to relate this in mind-numbing specifics <laughs> now. So I'd been in to buy like a Mr. Man book. And, I'd, and so I bought that and I was going to the counter with the Mr. Man book and I saw an orange book with a cat on the cover and I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. And I picked it up and it was The Master of Margarita. And I thought, oh, that's one of the books that I was going to read for that thing that I was going to do. <laughs> so I bought it and on the train on the way back to where we live, I started reading it. And after I'd read a bit of it, I thought, wow, this is great. I haven't done this for like since my son was born, i.e. Mm. reading a book for pleasure. Mm. And so just in a state of kind of the novelty of it, I started reading it and I made myself read a few pages every day. Mm. And initially I thought, well, I don't know if I like this. It's all right. It's not bad. And then something just really amazing and magical happened. And, and I, I talk about it in the book that I just started reading it and thinking, yeah, this, is, this, book, this book is amazing. Mm. But also this is what is amazing about books. It was a real kind of... Um, return back to something that I had always that had always been very important to me but I think I've kind of lost the the thread of yeah so having done that one I then kind of thought wow look at me I've read the master and margarita um <laughs> I can tick that box and I can have a bit of integrity and I've actually done that um so that I suppose to answer your question that's what pushed me forward yeah um no one thing, I guess, kind of just a kind of a drip, drip, drip of thinking, I really ought to do this, I really ought to do this, I really ought to do this, and then I did it. Yeah. So the idea of what constitutes a good book um, is always going to be quite a contentious issue. And it's something that you kind of touch on, but not really discuss in depth. So you, at the beginning, you mention, as you say, you can't be considered, or you wouldn't consider yourself um, better, well-read if you hadn't read Moby Dick or Middle mm -hmm. March or Anna Karenina, War mm -hmm. and Peace, where did you get that sense of well-read from? Is that something that the idea of being well-read well, and it be revolving around certain texts that you have to kind of have under your belt? I think there are different, there's different answers to that question. One of the answers, the serious answer is mm. there's a canon. Mm. It's, it's foolish to pretend that there isn't. Yeah. Even in an age where critical expertise is somewhat devalued, mm and personal taste is foregrounded, there is still a canon that we would expect to be read, studied, and considered the apex of the art form of novel writing yeah. or just book writing. Mm. Um, and so quite a few of the choices that I made were informed, not, I think, directly by thinking I need to tick these off, but just by the fact that they're out there and that they're, they're books that about which one might be expected to have an opinion whether or not one had read the book. Yeah. But also I kind of, one of the pleasures of doing it was drawing in books that you might not expect to find in those lists. And they tended broadly to fall into two group, groups. Yeah. Either books that are cult books that I should have read when I was 17 but didn't, mm. often American. Yeah. So uh, On the Road, American Psycho, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, and interestingly, those are the books that I found most difficult in this yeah. whole project because it was too late. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, did that, that must have had an impact on Well, it? I loved American Psycho, an, yeah. absolutely bri- an absolutely brilliant book, but mm. I really struggle with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was written as a magazine article for Rolling Stone magazine by Hunter Thompson. And although Hunter Thompson is a brilliant journalist and it's a superb long magazine article, mm. it's not a book mm. with the best will in the world. With the best, <laughs> with the best one in the world, it's it. You know, I mean, it is a book because yeah. you can buy it as a book, and people <laughs> love it, and it really speaks to people. Yeah. But I, in my adv- advanced age of my late thirties, I got to it and thought, well, the only level at which I can really appreciate this is as a piece of journalism, and it's an interesting piece of journalism. But as a kind of bit of as a crafted three act book, mm. that's not what that is. So I found those quite tricky. Yeah. And then the third group was just things that were. I don't know, that things that I had wanted to read because they'd been recommended to me or I'd read a review 20 years ago or I read a novel by a guy called Rex Warner Mm. called The Aerodrome, which no one's heard of. I don't (laughs) know why it's stuck in my head. Somebody mentioned it to me when when I worked in a bookshop in the early 90s and I'd never even seen a physical copy of it. Yeah. And then it became one of the things that I felt I had to read at some gut level, Rex Warner's The Aerodrome. And I read it and it's rubbish. Right? <laughs> but to somebody, it really means a lot. Mm. And another book that I read uh, from the, outside the canon was um, Julian Cope's book, Krautrock Sampler, mm. which is a book that uh, if... if I had the. We, we talked about this at that event, didn't we? And people were laughing at me, just laughing at me for thinking that there was any social pressure to have read Julian Cope's Krautrock sampler. But there is in the social circles in which I move, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not yours, but in mine, there is. And that is a book about where he takes, and you may. I, I found this book very inspiring on several mm. levels, where he takes 50 records from the genre of Krautrock which is German progressive rock from the late 60s to mid-70s. And he weaves this incredible story and view of the world and view of music and art, which is, I, I hold my hand up and say, was very inspiring for this book, to take cultural artefacts and build something else out of them. Mm. I found that very exciting and very thrilling. Mm. And so for, for Julian Cope to write in this peculiarly over-the-top post Lester Bangs ludicrous he did no research for it either he did no backup reading he just wrote it uh, about Can and Noy and Faust was just really exciting to read mm. because it shows you what you can do with words and what you can do with books yeah. as well mm. um, and so mixing all those different types of books like the big classics like you might expect to find like Tolstoy and Julian Cope yeah. and say, you know, The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt, which was a book that, again, another cult book, which I should have read when I was 17, which I hated more than I can begin to express. Mm. Jamming all those books together. It was really inspiring. It's like banging rocks together and getting sparks out yeah. of them that shouldn't have really been banged together in the first place. Yeah. Really, really interesting. I think that's great because it is. It comes across as a... Firstly, a very personal book, but also it's it's a very personal list that seems kind of more based on, as you're saying, on instinct and and what you want to absorb rather than like a kind of Guardian top 100. I'll pick the very much, top yeah. 50. And I think, yeah, it's great. And you clearly kind of learn a lot about yourself as well through I the think process, the, through the reading. I think the thing I say at the very beginning of the book, which I, I, I knew from quite early on would have to be dealt with, is I don't want people 
to read the 50 books that I read. That's not the point. Mm. The point is you should look inside yourself and think to yourself, what do I want to read yeah. that, I, that I keep putting off or that I, that I fibbed about? You don't even have to, fibbed about, uh, to have fibbed about it, but just what do I want to read that isn't what might be in the book's pages or, 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 or you know, what, might, what there might be some pressure to read. Just take a deep breath and think mm. and, and, you know, don't be... Don't lack ambition. The only thing stopping you reading, you know, uh, Moby Dick, for the sake of argument, mm. is you. Mm. You don't have to read it all in one go. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to actively enjoy it, right? <laughs> even you can read a chapter a day while you read something else. Yeah. But but the difference between saying you've read something, uh, you know. And when you haven't actually read it and actually reading it, is it, it just, I find it it's very liberating, you know, very, um, and it's such a small thing. It's just reading a book. Mm. But I think books, a bit like music and films as well, you know, you it helps to know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you can go quite a long way if you don't. <laughs> but, Bullshitting, yeah. Yeah, but, but, you know, but, you know. And uh, obviously... Da Vinci Code aside, which book would you... You've uh... given it away! You've given away! You've given away the one bit of suspense in the book. What was the, what was the not great book? No, 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 don't PM, don't, don't that PM was it. the question. That's it, it's all... <laughs> Anyone listening to this now, any incentive to purchase has just vanished, has gone out the window. Which book? Yeah. Wait for it. <laughs> Apart from the Da Vinci Code, which yeah. obviously everyone slightly wishes they'd written. Um... <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yeah. Which book do you wish you'd written that's on your list of better? Oh god, that's absolutely easy. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to take it down. That's actually that's a really interesting question. I I I I said it was easy, and then even as I was saying it's easy, I can think of two other answers. Yeah. I'm going to give you three possible answers for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have written Krautrock Sampler, and perhaps in my own way I have done in this book, at least on some level, which mm. is take the idea of uh, t- taking a list of things and doing something, you know, exciting with it. Mm. Um, I really, really loved uh, Atomized by Michelle yeah. Welbeck. Yeah, brilliant. That, that, uh, that was an extraordinary book, which... Just personally, when I read it, it made me feel like I felt about books that I really loved when I was a teenager or when I was in my 20s. That I, I, I read it thinking, well, this shouldn't be allowed mm. at some level. This is so brilliantly mm. funny and well-written and true mm. that why aren't more books like this? Mm. Um, and I suppose at some level, uh, I would like to have written... Um, I don't know. I quite like to have written the last book that I read was um, Code of the Worcesters by P.G. Woodhouse. And mm. I'd like to have written that because it's funny. Yeah. And it's yeah. only funny. You know, it isn't about anything else. It's about a stolen cow creamer. And it's a series of jokes about that. <laughs> but it's so brilliant and so, you know, exists on on the gas of of its own humour. Yeah. Alone. Yeah. Um. And are there any authors in particular on the list that have had a marked influence, whether or not you were maybe aware because you hadn't yet read them? Yeah. But of your writing and your kind of perception of writing and perception of reading especially, I guess. I really, all the, all the writers and books that I really, really love tend to have some element of humour in. Mm. 
even if they are writers that you wouldn't necessarily, when I mention them to you, think, wow, funny. Hilarious, yeah. Yeah. So I really love Welbeck. I find him very funny, although I'm well aware that many people don't and simply find him offensive. Um, I really like Kafka because I think Kafka is very, very funny. He's not only funny. He's not a barrel of laughs and that's all. (laughs) But the idea that he isn't at some level quite witty and self-aware. Yeah. And I, I didn't read for the purposes of this book because I'd already read everything by him. But I, I really love Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams was my great hero when I was about 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in prose terms, he still is. Because, you know, I'm not really into science and I'm not really into computers and the things that Douglas Adams was into. But a bit like Woodhouse, his ability to weave magic as I see it, out of mm. words mm. and humour out of words and the way a word will fall and be funny in a way that you could think of a synonym for it and it would fall and it wouldn't be funny. Yeah. Just that sustained judgement, again, in a sentence to sentence to sentence, mm. that's amazing, amazing, mm. you know. I feel about Adams the way that other people feel about, I don't know, Larkin or George Eliot or whoever, mm. you know. So, um, you joke a little bit in the book about the idea that reading isn't a male pastime. Um, <laughs> I joke, but like many jokes, very serious. It's factually accurate. So, factually accurate or more speculative, <laughs> and more kind of—is that just the kind of more the joke, the pun, less than actually true? What I mean, why do you think that is? The joke? Well, no, I mean, I, I'll give you a serious answer to that. Read if you statistically speaking, yeah. If you look at uh, the statistics of who is in book groups, who borrows books from libraries, mm. and who enjoys posting about books online, the majority of those people are female. Yeah. So at some level, I mean, we could make a joke about it, and there are men who like reading, but as I say in the book, at one point, they are in the minority. Yeah. I the shocking statistic that's in this book, which is true is that four out of five fathers have never read a bedtime story to their child. 80%. 80% of men, because, as I say in the book, we're going on a bear hunt, doesn't have enough lesbians in it, <laughs> refuse to read a story to their children, right? Uh, I think that is completely unacceptable. Mm. And as a man, it makes me completely embarrassed mm. to have to share toilet facilities with those four <laughs> other men, right? As the fifth man who has been brave enough mm. to break the gender stereotype of reading a story to his child. So why do you think that is a stereotype? Well, it's a stereotype. I mean, obviously <laughs> it's, it's a, a true stereotype. stereotype but it's a has... stereotype because it's, because it's got a basis, unfortunately, in truth. But why why do I think men don't yeah. do that? I absolutely don't know. I can only assume that the dominant forms of masculinity in the era we're living through at mm. the moment are connected to cars, football, barbecues. All things you hate, by the way. (laughs) As mentioned in the book. (laughs) Things other than reading books. Yeah. Let alone reading books by women. I mean, that's even... I mean, it makes me laugh if if I say that out loud, but the, the idea, truthfully, that a lot of men would struggle with the idea of reading a book if it was by a woman. Yeah. I think we're just... I just think it's... 
You know, my first book was a book about... This is a recurring theme of mine. My first book was a book called Tilting at Windmills about what it meant, what it feels like to be a man when you don't like sport. Mm. And to some extent, this book is a, <laughs> is a companion piece. Mm. You know, I hate sport. This, I love books. But the, the similar theme between the two books is just feeling, well, you know, why don't lots of other men not, not have to say whose company I'm not particularly keen <laughs> to uh, solicit, why do they not want to read books? Why do yeah. they not want to engage with books? And I don't know, the, I honestly don't know the answer to that. All I can say to you is that the dominant cultural stereotype at the moment is, is to not read. Yeah. You know, you tell me. I don't you know. can't, no. No, I can't. I wish I could. wish I could change that along with many... <laughs> no, now I'm going to go on like some feminist rant and then that will be cut. <laughs> <laughs> Do it! I mean, I wish, honestly, for this book, I wish I'd read more books. I wish I'd read... I deliberately didn't all operate any quota systems yes okay but i did think about it i did think to myself well what i ought to do is read 25 books by women and 25 books by men yeah but then i thought i don't want to do that you know a lot of the energy of this book came out of thinking what do i want to read next yeah and being truthful and trying to be truthful about the books i had read and the books that i wanted to read next Mm. and so i didn't exclude women from that but i just genuinely tried to follow my instinct yeah. i mean in a sense i think i could write this book again although it would be a very different book if i were to read say 30 books by women mm-hmm. or um say 20 novels by writers who were neither british nor american mm. but that would be a different experience because it wouldn't at whatever level and i'd say this against myself it wouldn't be something that I aspired I to do. Yeah. You know, it would be a it would be much more of a quota exercise of exactly the kind that I say at the beginning of this book that I don't want to do. Yeah. You know, it is a very varied list in terms of you know literature from Russia, America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you could always and... do more, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I could absolutely. always do more. Yeah. I, I looked at it, and I, I you know, as some of the books, again, in a sense, this isn't. In a sense, this is difficult to talk about because it seems like I'm making. A slightly patronising, um, uh, uh, special special pleading. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I, which I don't intend to. But you know, I, I look at like uh, Middlemarch is a good example, or or The Handmaid's Tale, or Frankenstein, or Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese, which I absolutely loved. Mm. It's an incredible book. Or Beloved by Toni Morrison. Beloved is brilliant. Another yeah. incredible book. Mm. Books which are both something to do with their authors being women because they're reclaiming aspects of femininity within those novels. Yeah. But at the same time are nothing to do with their being women. They're mm. to do with them being brilliant novelists mm. and technicians. Mm. And I say that in a wholly positive yeah. way, you know. Yeah. Um, so... It's a tricky one. I still, it's something I still feel, you know, I try to feel... aware of, I guess. Yes, I do yeah. feel aware of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, in fact, I read some more Jean Reese quite recently. I read some of her, some of her short stories. She's just an amazing writer, mm. but a ne- really neglected writer as well. Yeah. Quite hard to, to find a couple of them, but um, terrific anyway, yeah. Mm. Uh, you have a fun appendix in the back. Notes for reading groups. So um, I'm going to ask you some questions from your notes for reading groups. Um, Brilliant. Andy okay. Miller, would you describe your book group as middle brow? 
You mean my book group or yes. book groups? But actually, w- take that as you will. Your book group. Book okay. In All right. Okay. Let, let's give them. Let's give some back. Let's give a bit of context to that and these reading group notes. I hate. <laughs> I hate reading group notes in books. Yes. One okay. of them is. Um, are these discussion notes meant to be taken seriously? Exactly. <laughs> I think. I. I think. It's. It is patronising of publishers to lead the reader by the nose yeah. towards specific areas of do- discussion, which they're perfectly capable or incapable of arriving at themselves. The point is, you know, the novel is there for you to take away what you want from, at whatever level you're capable of doing. Yeah. And um, so when it got to the end of this book, I thought as a kind of, how can I like, as sort of like a, a kick up the arse on the way out the door, <laughs> I kind of thought I'm going to write a series of reading group notes which simultaneously draw attention to specific things that I've tried to do in the book, but also ask the reader the question, mm. did you get this? If you didn't get it, is it your fault as the reader or my fault as the author? Yeah. And that is a serious and but funny question. Yeah. Okay. So to go back to reading. It's never going to be as simple as, you know, the customer is always right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we can talk about that. The customer (laughs) is always right. I have a whole, a whole, that, that drives me crazy. Um, You know, the customer is not always, the customer is the customer. You can't extrapolate anything else from that. Despite people think there's some moral imperative as derived from the idea of being a customer. (laughs) Okay. But there hasn't. It's a thing that people used to say to get people to buy more things. It's not like a moral code, is it? customer is always right the customer is the person with the money that you want to get off them you can't say anything more than that anyway i'm digressing they book are groups. morally better people book groups <laughs> i think book groups are great um there's loads of research into book groups which is really fascinating a, a lot of which i read for this book and didn't put in the book because it didn't feel appropriate mm. but fundamentally book groups tend to be what we would call middle brow enterprises which is that they tend to lead to discussion of books, not on a technical level, why would they, but in terms of how they make the readers feel. Yeah. And so I was a member of a book group disastrously for about 18 months. I mean, I did quite enjoy it, but all I wanted to talk about was how the books function because that's my interest as a writer and an editor, you know, technically. Yeah. But whereas most other people just wanted to talk about how the books made them feel, I don't, you know, I, I didn't need to do that, right? And what I found in a book group was it was very difficult to actually smuggle in what I felt about the books into a discussion of the books without causing offence to the other people in the book group, all of whom I really liked. But it was like joining a, you know, I don't know, a furniture group where (laughs) one of you is an expert cabinet maker and the others aren't. It's like Ikea. Right, you know, so the opinion of the people who don't make cabinets for a living (laughs) is necessarily less expert than those who do, right? Now, that sounds really offensive, Not even, even as I say Let's it. Let's be clear. Not less valid. <laughs> well, at some level, it is less valid. <laughs> I'm winning. I read as falling away now. Right? <laughs> but, but I don't care because it's true. You know, the point is all opinion, everyone is entitled to an opinion. Yes. That is definitely true. Yes. I have no problem with that. But not all opinions are equal. And what we base opinion on is expertise. And expertise is the result of experience, research, seriousness. Mm. So, you know, I struggle, not... with a bo- I struggle with the book group yeah. simply because I think I was overqualified for what a book group can be. Some book groups can be fantastic and they enthuse people about reading. Mm. But 
But you no. wouldn't claim that a, the job um, of a book or a novel is to show you the author's expertise and their, all the things that maybe you would pick up on more if you are in professional books yeah. you work in publishing. That's not what a book's job is. A book's job is to get those, well, on one level is to get those emotions and those opinions that maybe aren't as critically valid, but are still... So to deny that those opinions yeah. are I, unequal... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can kind of they're different, different and we could debate forever whether yeah, they are true. more or yeah. less valid <laughs> i i feel if you are talking about it depends what you think the function of a book group is fundamentally yeah if the book is the tool that allows people to express how they feel about the issues described in the book that is fine i don't have a problem with that but the as a, as a process to explore how the book works mm. Not necessarily. It doesn't always work. It mm. depends on who is contributing to that discussion. Mm. So in answer to my own question, <laughs> would I describe my book group as middlebrow? Yes, I would. And pray they never get to hear this. Good. Next. Um, next, indeed. Throughout the year of reading Dangerously, Andy Miller has employed recurring motifs of the tiger and the monkey. What do the tiger and monkey symbolise? Anything? <laughs> okay, Right. You're putting me on the spot and asking me what they symbolise. The tiger in this book, which recurs frequently throughout the book, though I don't expect anyone to have spotted it except me, uh, symbolises the passion of reading. And the monkey, which recurs repeatedly throughout this book that I don't expect anyone to have spotted, refers to the pressure to read things that isn't the passion of reading. Perfect. And at some level, that's only there for me. I would, I would, I would. The reader would have to be a clairvoyant to yeah. spot that. But, a, but a, an attentive reader will spot that those those images recur again and again in yeah. the book. Yeah. And if they recur again and again in the book, you know, a careful reader will think to yourself, that must be for a reason. Mm. Now they don't need to work out. They they can come up with their own reason. But, yeah. You know. Did you understand what Andy Miller was trying to achieve in the year of reading Dangerously? If not, whose fault is that? Yours or his? <laughs> Did I understand what? I understood perfectly. <laughs> I'm literally the only person who will. Don't say that. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I'm very happy if other people enjoy the book and they get a lot out of it. But I had this discussion with somebody quite recently on Twitter, in a, like all discussions on twitter in an unsatisfactory manner um which was which was to say you know who understands the book more the reader or the writer yeah and it's a big thing for me this uh, a serious point that you know when i read middlemarch by george Eliot, i don't think i am the equal of george Eliot. I think George Eliot is an amazing writer who is working at a level that I probably don't entirely understand, mm. but I can perhaps plug into at some level. Yeah. Okay. And I think this is a really um, contemporary and weird thing. The idea, actually, funnily enough, that the customer is always right, yeah. has found itself transferring over to the idea that we are equal on some level to these readers, you know. Mm. And I read things on Amazon where where people have ordered, say, like Ulysses by James Joyce, and they've given it one star, <laughs> right? And they've gone, oh, read Ulysses. Oh, read three pages of it. Didn't understand it. 
took it as a personal insult from James Joyce to me, right, back through time, chucked it away, but I give it one star because it arrived well packed, right? And I think, well, that's inadequate. As a response to Ulysses, which is a deliberately difficult book, you can't just go, oh, I didn't get it. Mm. Oh, I didn't like it. It's just, it, you know you're not operating on the same level. And so the answer to, to your question, the question posed in those reading group notes, is, you know, uh, if you got something out of it, I'm delighted. But writers often write to try and make the things themselves, like painters paint to paint the painting they want to paint. Yeah. And then try and find a way in for other people. So, you know... I'm simultaneously presenting this here as a kind of elitist thing. I don't mean that at all. You know, I try to write in a very amusing, accessible way. Mm. But when it comes down to it, to get every little thing that's in the book, just like every little thing that's in Middlemarch yeah. or every little thing that's in a book by Hilary Mantel or whoever, mm. you'd have to be the author. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of authors do write books for themselves. But it is a, in, you know, an interesting point of whether or not, regardless of whether the customer is right, does the author have a kind of a duty, I guess, to the reader to convey what they want, not necessarily in a clear-cut way, because obviously I'm not saying that Ulysses is therefore... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's impenetrable in yeah. some aspects and infinite jest, et cetera, et cetera. But is there a kind of an onus on the author to bring out something so that they're not just writing for themselves, so that this book... Well, that's a very interesting point. I feel, I read, there's a brilliant quote by, I think it is actually Kerouac, author of On the Road, who, we, who I mentioned earlier, who I didn't, you know, On the Road, which I didn't enjoy. But Kerouac said, you know, writers shouldn't, good writers don't write to impress the reader. Good writers write to impress other writers. Yeah. You know, I think there is an element of truth to that. Uh, but I also think, you know... The writer's first duty is to their book, not to the reader of the book. Yeah. And at whatever level, you know, writing books is hard and can take years at a time. And you can't spend that amount of sustained time thinking, I wonder if people will like this. I hope they like this. You know, I think you have to hold something back for you that you want to communicate mm. and use your skill and judgment. Mm. <laughs> to try and find a way of presenting it as best you can. So I, I feel, and I, I came about as reading, as a result of reading books for this book, that, you know, if we take the examples, I have a chapter in this book where I compare and contrast The Da Vinci Code and Moby Dick. <laughs> and I do it because I think it's funny, but I also think there's a serious point to it, which is, you know, when I read The Da Vinci Code, which I read in a day, I couldn't put it down and I got to the end of it and thought, wow, that was terrible. I really ought to read something good. And then I read Moby Dick, which took me weeks, which was really difficult, chapter at a time. But when I finished it and I could hold it at arm's length and look at it and study it, I thought, well, that's a masterpiece. You know, so the, the, if all the writer does is entertain the reader, then... They're doing a disservice to the book? Well, not necessarily, because that might be what they want to do with the book. Yeah. But... Uh, for me, you know, it's the difference between being an artist and being an entertainer, to use yeah. a brutal way of dividing it up. If what you're doing is for your reader, you're an entertainer. And if what you're doing is for you or for the book, you're an artist. Mm. The trick is balancing those two things. Yeah. Final question. 
it doesn't matter anyway because it's all a load of shit. Do you agree? <laughs> I love being presented with that completely free of the context. <laughs> when I was a student, like I'm going to fill people in on this. When I was a student, it's mentioned in the book, when I was a student, I knew a bloke who stayed up for three nights to finish his doctoral thesis. And at the end of it, he wrote the following phrase, but it doesn't matter anyway, because it's all a load of shit. And they failed him for it. But I have stuck in my brain for nearly 30 years as a thing that I say all the time, because I think at some level... You know, when we're what are we? We're dots on a dot. You know, we're we're microscopic specks. You know, the things that matter to me that would drive me to write a whole book and try and be funny and entertain you and, you know, te- encourage you to read these books. Mm. You know, um, my little life story, as I've told in the book, it, on some level, it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. But at the same time, it's the most important thing in the world. Mm. You know. Having the, the, the energy that you draw from the art that you love, books or music or films or whatever it is, for me, that's why we're here. That's the compensation for being here. Yeah. You know, the miserable awfulness of life <laughs> at least has a few books and records and films in it. Mm. You know, so it doesn't matter and it matters completely. Well, on that very positive and um, great answer, thank you so much, Andy, for coming in today. It's been Great fun. Thank you. Not at all. And uh, The Year of Reading Dangerously is published by Fourth State on the 8th of May, available in hardback and ebook. Thank you for listening and join us again next time for more conversations with your favourite authors.